Oh, uh, I, this may have been said already. I, I, just, I just got in here from the chapel service. Terry was the worship minister at the church that I grew up at as a teenager. And uh, so this feels like coming home today. He sent Breeshan an email. I mean, we haven't talked in, I mean, years. And he sent Breeshan an email before this morning that said, oh, I remember Eric Gentry as a teenager. And that horrified me. I mean, I live in fear that people who knew me as a teenager will resurface in my life. And um, so hopefully he doesn't share any secrets today that I wouldn't want. It's really good to have you here today, brother. Uh, there's a study, famous study called From Jerusalem to Jericho. Okay, Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, maybe you're remembering the path between those two cities because it's there that Jesus says a man's traveling and a group of robbers come upon him. They rob him, beat him, strip him, and leave him for dead. So a priest comes walking by and seeing the man there steps widely around him and continues on his way. And then a Levite does the same thing. Two of the religious guys do this. It's a Samaritan, the last person we'd expect for a host of reasons and another sermon we could talk about who surprisingly stops to help this guy. <clears throat> and then Jesus says, remember what he says? Go and do likewise, go and do likewise. So there was a group of researchers recently, a couple of years back, who wanted to test out just how likely are we to go and do likewise, to help people when they need it. And I'm using that pronoun we in a slightly more restrictive sense than usual. He wanted to know how likely are ministers, the people who talk a big game about serving and following Jesus, how likely are they to go and do likewise? So now you're interested in this story, right? Okay. So uh, you want to confirm all your suspicions about ministers. So what they did is they take these, these groups of preaching students, classes of preaching students, and they give them different stories to preach on. So half they give the Good Samaritan story and half they give another story. This is a control in the test. So then the students all show up at their assigned times to preach at their assigned class. But when they get there, they throw them this curveball and they say, last minute, your teacher had to change the classroom. It's gonna be in this different building down the alleyway, okay? And then this is where they, it gets interesting. All right. They send them out the back door down the alleyway. And as they step out, they say to one group, half of them, you need to hurry. Okay, you've got just a little bit of time. You need to get there as quick as you can. She's waiting on you. Get there as fast as you can. And they say to the other group as they're leaving to walk down the alley to the new class, hey, sorry about the inconvenience. Take your time. It's no big deal. She'll be there when you get there. Just take your time. Right, two groups. So they go into the alleyway, and there they've stationed this actor who's laying on the ground, kind of slumped against the wall, groaning, okay, in pain, obviously in pain. And they want to see what these soon-to-be ministers are going to do. Here's what they think. Three hypotheses, okay? The first is that since all of these are training to be ministers, all of these are Christians training to be ministers, they are most likely going to stop most of them and help this guy. If not, number two, they get, the folks who are about to preach on the Good Samaritan story will see this guy and think, hmm, this sounds familiar, and they'll stop and help him. They're more likely to stop than the others. And then third of all, they say, okay, well, at least the group with more time who are less hurried will stop. All right, and here's, here's what they found out. And it's, it's not very uh, flattering for ministers like myself. They found that the single biggest predictor was not what, if they would help, was not whether they were Christian or not, or whether they were going to be ministers or not, okay, or whether they were preaching on the Good Samaritan story or not. The single biggest predictor was how much time they had. 
63% of the low hurry group, the group that said, take your time, stopped to help, 63%. How many of the high hurry group you think stopped? 10%, just 10%. See, aren't you glad you're not a minister? You know, you're like, man, this confirms my suspicions. I, would, I wouldn't trust ministers any further than I could throw myself. So here's, here's the takeaway of the Jerusalem to Jericho study. And Richard Beck, this author, he said it boils down to one word, and the word is hobby. He said, most of us treat following Jesus, and I'm using us now in a, in a wider sense. Most of us treat following Jesus as a hobby because hobbies are what you do when you have free time, right? So if you have important stuff to do, if you've got a lot of work to do, then you don't get around to your hobbies, okay? So most of us treat following Jesus as a hobby. The whole go and do likewise thing in this Good Samaritan story, well, if I have the time to help somebody, but if not, which sounds like a hobby. So think about it like this. Uh, when you become a parent, Or let me say that differently, when you're baptized into parenthood, which it is a baptism, your control over your time instantly vanishes, right? It suddenly evaporates, disintegrates into thin air. Even time that was formerly reserved for sleep, your kids don't care, right? Like last night, we made the mistake of giving Noble a whole Muddy's cupcake at 8 p.m. So he was up from 2 to 4.30 last night, okay? Big mistake. Your kid doesn't care that it's three in the morning. They want to hang out, right? You go to the grocery store on your kid's schedule. You go to, you do the laundry on the kid's schedule. You um, go shopping on your kid's schedule. You eat when your kid lets you. You even sadly go to the restroom when your kid lets you, right? How many parents can vouch for that? Sometimes you hold it for hours. Okay, all right. Being a parent is not a hobby, right? When, when we were about to have our second son, somebody told me, well, one kid takes up all your time, another kid can't possibly take up any more of your time. And he was right. Being a parent isn't a hobby. When you're baptized into that, you can't treat it that way. But but when you're baptized into Christ, well, so what Jesus does in response to this is genius. He doesn't beat us up about it. He doesn't say, you sorry dog, this isn't a hobby. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Okay, well, he does say that last bit. So there's some urgency here. But instead of beating us up about this, he does the opposite. He gives us a gift. This magical gift that's designed to put us on God's time. To give us more time in our life to see and help those people around us. To help those in need when they need it. The gift is a gift of rest. Jesus says in this verse we looked at in Matthew 11 a few weeks ago with Chris, Come to me, all you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's the promise, the gift of rest. We looked at that a few weeks ago. We don't need to look at it again. It's what comes after it that I'm interested in because in the, in the verses following it, Jesus shows us what practically the gift of Sabbath rest looks like for us. So we're far enough in the series now, we need to talk practical. What does this look like? And that's what happens next. At that time, this is the beginning of chapter 12 in Matthew. 
Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. Notice it's all taking place on the Sabbath day. His disciples, they were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain and eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, well, have you not read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him or his companions to eat, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and yet are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would have not condemned the guiltless for the son of man is Lord in the Sabbath. He goes on. He left that place and he entered their synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to cure on the Sabbath? It's still the Sabbath day so that they might accuse him. And he said to them, suppose one of you has only one sheep. It falls into a pit on the Sabbath. Will you not lay hold of it and lift it out? And how much more valuable is a human being than a sheep? So, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and it was restored as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him about how to destroy him. So this is Matthew in Mark's version of the same text, okay, the same scene. I wanted to use the Matthew version because it follows the passage Chris showed us a few weeks ago. But in Mark's version of the same scene, he adds this line that Jesus said for us to remember. And it makes a lot more sense of the whole scene and what I'm gonna say today. He says this in Mark chapter two, the Sabbath was made for people and not people for the Sabbath. So we've been preaching on this uh, series, Idol, Sabbath and Solitude and Rest for a few weeks. And a parent here at Highland came up to me on Wednesday night and he said, Eric, it's been a really good series, uh, but here's my question. If my Sabbath creates more work for somebody else, isn't that selfish? And so not a good idea, which is a great question. So as a parent, I can resonate with that question because if I wanna sleep in on Saturday morning, my kids don't care and they're gonna get up when they get up. And so if, if I just really wanna rest, well, Lindsay's gonna have to get up and take care of the kids. So my rest creating more work for somebody else. Okay. So here's what we needed to do. We need to make a distinction that we haven't really made yet in this sermon series, but it's important to make. Let's talk about the difference between Sabbath and solitude. We've been using those synonymously and they're not quite the same. You know how in math, every square is a rectangle, but not every rectangle is a square. For the record, I had to look that up and I just had to look at it again before I said it. Okay, every square is a rectangle, not every rectangle is a square. Every solitude is Sabbath, but not every Sabbath is solitude. Let me explain. The biblical explanation for Sabbath is work stoppage. And the Bible does not define parenting or spending time with family as work, despite what you might want it to say. All right. Here's what the Bible defines as work. Here's a quick example, Exodus 34, 21. There are many places we could go. Let's look at this one. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, Sabbath day, even in plowing time and in harvest time you shall rest. So the kind of work that you are not supposed to do on a Sabbath period is economic. Anything that has to do with producing, plowing, or consuming, harvesting. 
Okay? You probably remember from our first sermon in the series that God liberates Israel from Egypt where they were enslaved to the system of more and more and more production and consumption. And God says, I want you to rest, take a Sabbath from that. So what does that look like practically today? If we were going to be practicing Sabbath, what should we not do? Well, we wouldn't want to be checking our email for work-related emails because that has to do with producing business, commerce. And so we're getting sucked into that when we check it for those emails. Uh, think about studying for a test. So this is where I'm going to land on the kids' side rather than the parents'. Um, if I'm studying for a test, the goal is to get a good grade so I can graduate well, get into a good college, and ultimately get a good job where I make what? Good money, right? So to be fair to our children, a Sabbath time for them should not include studying. And maybe you're a person that really loves to shop. Like you just love to get out and and buy stuff, and maybe you're doing it generously or not, but we would say that's consumption. And consumption, just like producing and consuming, are bad ideas for the Sabbath. They're not restful. So think about solitude again. If you're getting up in the morning and you're spending time alone with God in your Bible and you're praying, so time of solitude, what you're probably not doing is surfing your phone on Amazon.com at the same time. Or you might be, and that's bad solitude, right? Okay. So ideally, a genuine solitude time is time alone with God, undistracted from these other producing and consuming distractions, right? That's natural. So solitude is always going to be Sabbath. But Sabbath time could include spending time with your kids, spending time with your family, spending time with your grandkids, as long as you're resting from the grind of production and consumption that defines so much other time in our life. Sabbath is not necessarily solitude. And this is what Jesus means when he says that the Sabbath was made for people and not people for the Sabbath. In other words, I'm giving you time off so that you can bless and be blessed by people, not make it harder on them. So this is what Jesus shows us in this scene. Uh, We've got Jesus on the Sabbath day, and who's he with? Notice he's not by himself. He's with his disciples on the Sabbath day. And they're hungry, and so Jesus feeds them. It doesn't distract from his rest to feed them, his friends, his family at this point. It gives him joy to feed them, so, so he does it. And then he comes across this man with a withered hand, and it's still the Sabbath day. And Jesus sees on the Sabbath day that this guy needs help, and so he helps him. And the Lord of the Sabbath shows us again what it means by when he means when he says the Sabbath was made for people and not people for the Sabbath. But all the while, there are these annoying Pharisees buzzing around alongside him. They would be like your work phone going off all day on Saturday. And what does Jesus do? He turns them off. He silences them, plugs them up on the charger, leaves it in the bedroom, and goes out to play in the backyard. That's what he does. So what does this have to do with our time and the whole Jesus hobby thing? Here's what I think. Let me break this down and then a story or two. Jesus promises us a gift of rest, which is really a gift of time. 
a Sabbath time designed to help us not to weigh us down, not to be another burden, another thing we have to do. But instead of making us more selfish, this kind of Sabbath restful time, the right, the right kind of Sabbath rest makes us more attentive to the people and their needs around us, whether that's family or friends or strangers. And it makes us better able to respond to them when they need help because now we have the time. Regular, routine rest helps us help other people. And to top it off, Jesus shows us that by practicing Sabbath, we become better able in the er other areas of our life to discern between what are compassionate opportunities to do the Jesus thing and what are consumeristic distractions, not the Jesus thing. Noticeably, this whole scene takes place on the Sabbath day, but other times Jesus makes those same distinctions not on the Sabbath day. Presumably the takeaway, what we practice on Sabbath influences every other day of the week. Whereas most of us, what we practice every day of the week influences our Sabbath. Working all day, producing, consuming all week ends up, that's what we do on Sabbath day. But in Jesus' economy of time, following him, going and doing likewise becomes more than a hobby if we create the time to do it. The trick isn't doing more, the trick is doing less so you can do what matters. The trick is doing less so you can do what matters. That's the gift. Okay. Uh, I was listening to the radio the other day and they were interviewing a nurse, a woman who was retiring from a life spent in nursing. And she'd wanted to be a nurse her whole life. From the time she was a little kid, she had gotten into the hospital as early as she could to do volunteer roles. She became a nurse's aide. She got degree after degree after degree and kind of rose up the nursing ranks until her retirement. And she was looking back on her life in nursing in this radio show. And she said what I didn't expect her to say. She said, I was the best nurse I ever was when I was just a nurse's aide. She said, um, because then, you know, over the years, I learned a lot more through all those degrees about administering medicine, about managing hospital teams, about reporting data. But when I was a nurse's aide, I actually had time to come into my patients' rooms, look them in the eyes. I didn't have to rush off to the next room. I could offer to give them, you know, a hand bath in the wash tub, to shave their stubble, to shampoo their hair, you know, to, to see them and make them feel human. She said the difference was time. Eugene Peterson, who's one of the best ministers and writers that I've ever read, he reminds us of this scene in Moby Dick by Herman Melville. And a reminder is helpful because maybe not all of us have read the whole book, right? Anybody can have heard that? A little long, even though it might have been assigned in school. And there's this scene where the boat is just casting off the whale boat across this violent ocean in the pursuit of the great white whale. And the boat is full of these sailors who are laboring without rest. Every muscle in their body is taut. They're just pulling at the oars. Their attention is bent totally on just propelling this boat in pursuit of the white whale. And Captain Ahab is up shouting orders at the men from above. The scene is one of chaos and busyness and tumult. But there in the boat is this one man who's doing nothing. He's not sweating, he's not shouting, he's just sitting silently. And Melville says, this is the harpooner who's waiting for his job to come. And he writes this brilliant line, 
to ensure the greatest efficiency in the dart, the harpooners of this world must start to their feet out of idleness and not out of toil. They must start to their feet out of idleness and not out of toil. So I, I know it's not exactly kosher to kill whales anymore. And uh, so this metaphor begins to break down, right? Ever since Free Willy, that's been a bad idea. But um, I think he's on to something. I think he's on to something. Jesus, in these stories on the Sabbath day, has a job helping people. A job that's so important, he's got to be rested to do it. To see the people who need help, to know how to help them, and to be able to offer them that help, he's got to start to his feet out of idleness and not out of toil, which is why Jesus continues to practice Sabbath. Okay. That is his job, to be undistracted, present, and available so that he can help people. It is his job, and so he rests. And it's our job, too. It is not our hobby. If you haven't experienced the rest that God offers and you want prayer today, I'd be glad to pray over you if you want to come down front. We've got shepherds who will be there in the back. I see Larry Houck waiting there now if you'd like prayer there. If you haven't given your life to Jesus and experienced that all-consuming rest that he provides by the power of his Holy Spirit, maybe today's to do, the day to do that in the waters of baptism behind me. I'd be glad to receive you down front. Let's all stand at this point. Let me invite the praise team back up and turn it over to Terry. Terry, let's sing together. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my heart, my strength.